Living in the hotel was kind of fun. If you've ever stayed at a hotel, you know it's very exciting to be in a hotel. Um, there's an ice machine. Welcome back to Growing Up Gavin. I'm still growing up, and today I'm talking about my experience with homelessness. I feel like homelessness is this abstract concept and idea like poverty or world hunger. I feel like children who are homeless are known about abstractly, but understanding and feeling what that actually is and walking in those shoes is something else entirely. I will sometimes randomly remember something that happened when I was homeless, and I will talk to my boyfriend about it and say, I just remembered something crazy. And I'm wondering, is it important for me to share? Is it important for other people to hear these stories? I have wanted to talk about this for a really long time, because I want to take this idea of homelessness, of child poverty, from the abstract from something that's out there affecting some people I don't know, and bring it down to the ground level and say, this is what the experience is like. This is what the experience was. And I'm somebody who went through it. And now here I am sitting at my desk recording about it because for one reason or another, I was lucky enough and well cared for enough to find a way out. But that this is not an abstract concept. This is not ancient history. This is something that affects people, that brings people shame and memories that they would rather forget So here I am, all these years later, still thinking about this. I still feel compelled to talk about this because it was so important to me and who I am and who I became. And I think it highlights sort of the humanity and the dignity of growing up in poverty and what that means and how that's shaped who I am. The time that I spent in Nebraska as a homeless child stands out to me in my mind as really one of the most formative times in my life. It shaped how I think about the world, how I think about politics, how I think about my duty to other people in the world, who I want to be, and who I think I am. So these are my stories from the homeless shelter. have to admit that when I embarked on writing out what I wanted to say for this episode, and I just wanted to remember and share sort of these memories, I really thought that this would be easier (laughs) than it has ended up being. I did not realize it would be difficult to remember all of these stories all at once and to think about that time in my life and to think of who I was and who I am now. I like to think that I have healed, and in many ways I have, but it can still be painful to have memories like this. If you listened to my last episode, you know that for a while, when I was around seven or eight years old, money was very tight in my house. There was a time when my father and mother were following court proceedings to determine custody of my brother and me, and things just got really rough at home financially. So my mom one day, she's calling hotels, and she's asking them about their weekly rates, because some of them have better weekly rates than it would be for daily rates. And she finds a place that we can move into and afford for however long it takes, maybe a couple weeks, a few weeks. And we pack everything we have into our car, into backpacks, including our cats, and we take these cats around to a hotel, and we sneak in with our litter box and our cats hiding in our backpack, because obviously you're not allowed to have cats in a hotel. And we live in a hotel for a week. 
one day after school, my brother and I get into our car with our mom, who is picking us up, and usually she brings the cats with her, but this time there were no cats to be found. And my brother and I ask her mom, well, where are the cats gone? And she just looks at us with this look in her face of, like, grave sincerity. And before she speaks, I know what she's going to say. We had to give them up, because we were moving into the homeless shelter, and there were no cats allowed. Talk of this had been brewing, like I said, my mom obviously dropping hints that things were rough, where I mean we're living in a hotel, it's pretty clear that things are not going well, and she kind of was saying, well, one option is the homeless shelter, and I'm praying it doesn't have to come to that. Because there are different kinds of homelessness. You can be homeless living in hotels in your town. We did that for a little while. You can be homeless living in your car. Thank God we never did that. You can be homeless living at your friend's house. You can be homeless living in a homeless shelter. It's kind of accepting about yourself that you're a different level of homeless. You're a different level of, like, destitute. That this is actually happening. You actually have nowhere to go. You don't have a friend. You don't have a family member. You have no cards up your sleeve, no way to avoid this, and there's no denying it or sugarcoating it. You're homeless, and you're, you're kind of institutionally homeless. You're institutionally homeless. On paper, you're homeless. Like, there is somewhere that is processing you, taking pictures of you, putting your name in the system. Your name is down on the paper. You have these new rules. This is your new life. This is your new obligation to be a member of this community. And this is your life. She did explore this as an option. If we do go there, there are no cats allowed. So we tried to put that off. We tried to stay with that off for as long as we could because we loved our cats and we had a responsibility, frankly, to take care of these cats. But my mom couldn't really focus on work because she didn't have childcare and she couldn't get childcare because she couldn't work to afford it. And she couldn't afford rent because the job she had didn't pay her enough to get rent, whatever. And we were running out of money and we couldn't afford hotel rates forever. And so we were in the homeless shelter. We drove from school that day on the edge of town that was situated right next to a cornfield to the center of town, downtown North Platte, Nebraska, where the Lincoln Connection Homeless Shelter stood in this incredibly old building next to some other abandoned buildings, a giant parking lot, an overpass highway, and a grocery store. It was a former restaurant, and it was divided into two areas. There was a downstairs area where there was a common space for single adults and this reception area for people when they walked in, and an upstairs area with three apartments for families. We would be one of the families in one of those apartments. We pull into the parking lot next to the shelter. We kind of walk in. We have to ask them to unlock the door to the apartments for us because we couldn't have our own keys. It was one of the rules of the shelter. And we met the nice people that were downstairs at the desk. When you're a 10-year-old, everyone's very incredibly nice to you, and they say nice things, and they ask how school is going. But all I was thinking was, this kind of sucks. (laughs) This just sucks, right? I don't want to live in a homeless shelter, and I don't want to have to say goodbye to my cats. So they unlocked the front door of our new apartment, and we all kind of walked in very tentatively. And I kind of slowly inched my way into the apartment, inspecting this place that was going to be our home. So I sort of sat down at the plastic table set up in the kitchen, and I looked at my mom, I looked at my brother. She was kind of going on trying to convince us it was all okay, this is all a little bit better than we had thought it was going to be. We had a table, let's look at the bright side, and we're not going to be here for very long, she said. We are going to be here for one weekend, she said. I didn't really believe that at that point. I kind of thought, I've heard so many things. (laughs) I've heard so many things. I don't think we're going to be here for just a weekend. And turns out we would not be there for a weekend. We would actually spend 11 months within those walls. 
smelling the smells, living in the community, participating in the activities, meeting the people, becoming a part of that world, standing between this life at school where everything had stayed the same and life at home where everything had been fragile and suddenly came crashing down. It was not a glamorous place. It was not a cozy little hole to find refuge in. We had indeed lived in some pretty rinky-dink places, but this was the rinkiest of rinky-dink. What I would definitely, I would borderline call it now uninhabitable. And the first thing I noticed was the smell. You could instantly smell it. And frankly, it just smelled like mold. The floors were like this very, very old, dirty, moldy wood floor, like kind of wet as you walked along it. If you walked barefoot the whole day, your feet would actually like turn black from, I don't know what, dirt, soot? I have no idea. There was no way to clean that floor. There was no hope for that floor. And you'd walk through, you know, there was a living room, there was this sort of dining area and a separate kitchen with a bedroom all the way in the back, which had two bunk beds, which would be where my brother and I slept. And there was a bed in the living room where my mom would sleep. The bathroom near the bedroom had a bathtub. It had grown gray and black from this like moldy discoloration. Our mom wouldn't let us shower in the bathtub because she was worried we would get sick from using the shower. And this would be our home. And at the time, I wasn't all that grateful for this place's existence, though today I am more grateful to have landed somewhere. And her, my mom was kind of, her eyes were betraying her, and she was reading every look on my face, and I could see in her eyes that it really pained her that this is what we had to do. She was sort of seeing every thought written on my face, and with every second passing, I could tell that she was heartbroken by this, that our entire lives had brought us to this place. And this fact just kind of gives me pause to think about at one time that this is where I was expected to live, to make my life, and to be somebody, and to grow, was in this place that I would now not even consider living in. You could tell me I'd live there for free again, and I would never, I would never not pay to live there. I would pay to not live there, actually. But that, at that time, was my normal, and it was where I was living. And it just kind of echoes sort of the desperation when you feel like you have nowhere to go, you have no choice, this is what you have to do. But we had a roof over our heads and mattresses to sleep on, we had a couch, we had a table, the place was there for us to use for free for as long as it took us to get back on our feet because someone else at some other time had decided to invest money in building a space for people like my family who needed a place to live when they were down on their luck. So we were upstairs in an apartment, we were lucky enough to have an apartment, while downstairs resided some 30 or so men and as many women who were single individuals. And they would sleep in mattresses in these like big rooms with mattresses lined up along the wall, right next to complete strangers. And every night, someone, maybe a volunteer from the community or someone from the downstairs area of the shelter, some nights it was my mother, would take the role of chef and make use of this former restaurant's industrial kitchen to offer to cook for everyone in the shelter at 6 o'clock. We would all go downstairs and stand in line and wait for whatever was being served. We would take a heaping plateful and we would eat it. And we would all sit together and talk and listen and gossip and whatever it was that was going on that day. Sometimes they would read announcements for us. It was really kind of like its own little community in that place. 
I remember once someone commented on my mom's cooking that it was very dry. And I took that very personally and I felt very upset about that. And I remember thinking as a 10 year old, well, someone is nice enough to come down here and cook for you and you're going to badmouth the food. I now think I am a snob for great food. So maybe it's okay that she had that comment. Nevertheless, I was grateful to have anything to put in my mouth, and I was not about to start criticizing the food or bite the hand that fed me. These meals, these nights that we spent all together were sort of the foundation of developing this community within the shelter of people who all knew each other, all spent our lives together, and the way we sort of relied on each other throughout this process, shared tips on how to get a job or what sort of jobs to look for. We inspired each other or we commiserated together, me with the young kids and my mom with the other adults. And there really was quite the cast of characters in this place. (laughs) You can imagine a homeless shelter in Nebraska. Many different people have taken many different paths that brought them to the shelter. I don't know if any of those people look back on our time spent there fondly and miss it, but I do think that it is important to highlight the power of the community in that place in being able to get through these times together. There were other young people. I think at the beginning, at least, nobody as young as my brother and me. So it was hard for me to find a group of people I really connected with. I found my own way of escaping, which was through the internet. The shelter had two computers in the common room that were programmed to work for one hour and then automatically shut off when your hour was over, which was your indication to get off the computer and hand it over to someone else if someone was waiting. It was at this computer where I learned about the absolute magic of the online world and the power of escaping from reality. Club Penguin was a sleigh. I loved Club Penguin, a perfect example of a game that would take me from the situation I was in and didn't really like to be in and deliver me to a world where anything was possible. And I was so desperate to play Club Penguin. I loved dressing up my penguin, playing the games, buying the clothes, adopting the little pets. I think they were called Puffles. It was so much fun for me and such an important way to escape from my current reality and talk to other people albeit through penguin chat. And as soon as the computer would shut down for me after an hour, signaling that my time was up, I would literally just restart the computer and continue about my penguin day. (laughs) And God help anyone who tried to stop a 10-year-old child from playing his penguin games at the homeless shelter. I think people would be sitting there waiting, but no one had the heart to tell a child that you need to stop playing the penguin game so that I can do whatever I want to do on the computer. I pretty much had a free reign of that computer, and I am eternally grateful for my time spent on that computer. The other game I loved was Webkins. I don't know if you have ever had a Webkins, but it's this game where you buy a stuffed animal in real life from a store, and it comes with a little code attached to it, which you can then put into a computer, and it sort of brings to life this virtual pet that you can also use to play games and dress up, and you can build them a house with all these different rooms, and they can get a job and all these different things. It was kind of iconic. But on one day when I went to JCPenney's with my mom, I was too poor to afford the $10 Webkins on this particular day. We were, after all, homeless. And so I saw the Webkins sitting there on the shelf that was for sale, and I grabbed a stuffed squirrel, which was one of the Webkins, and I peered at it. It was very cute, very nice, very cozy, and there was this tag on it enclosed in a plastic folder. And I sort of poked around the envelope and realized that if I angled it a certain way, I could actually see the code that was meant to be hidden. Like, I definitely should not have been able to see this code, but I was able to see it. And this code would give me access to that online world. 
And so I sort of decided, maybe playfully or sort of as a demonstration of my personal genius, like my own mischievousness, to memorize that code. I still sort of remember it. There was like a W and a V and a 7 and a U and like five other letters. And I memorized it. I told my brother I memorized it and that I was going to take it home to the shelter and activate this code and have an online squirrel. And that's exactly what I did. And I played that Webkins game for months, building up my little empire of Webkins goodies and clothes and experiences. And my brother and I would actually share this account and would take turns playing on it. Until one day, I went to log on and my account had been banned. And there was some message, I don't remember what it said, but something about I didn't earn the right to use the account, I had done something I shouldn't have or something. My guess is somebody probably bought the Webkins and then their code didn't work and Webkins had discovered my ruse. I was out of luck, but also terrified. (laughs) And I prayed to God that I wouldn't go to jail for stealing that code from a Webkins. I literally said to God, On more than one occasion, I would one day return to JCPenney's in North Platte, Nebraska and try to pay back my debts for the Webkins if he didn't send me to jail. And now JCPenney's is bankrupt. (laughs) That is totally my bad, and I apologize very deeply for not paying for my debts. But now that it's out of the open, I feel absolved a little bit. Like, I've done a lot of good for humanity. I am a nurse, you know? I take care of people. I've donated to charity since then. I think think I've paid my debts. I've, I've paid for that sin. But what didn't help this fear is that living in the homeless shelter, there was plenty of police activity in and out of that place. Sometimes police would come and apparently or ostensibly use the bathroom. They just wanted to go to the bathroom. Obviously, probably scoping out the area, seeing if there was any trouble, just checking in on a random afternoon. And other times they would be looking for people. There were rumors about what each of them had done, where each of them had been, why the police might be looking for them, and where they were going from here. There was one guy I always thought of as kind of weird. Like, he just gave me bad vibes. I feel like I don't need to explain this further. I don't know how to explain being 10 years old. And there was just this sort of weird guy. He was kind of shifty. He had a weird mustache. He was always, like, sitting alone and kind of watching everyone. And he would, like, I don't know. I don't even know. But one day, apparently, according to my mother, someone found panties in this man's bed that were for a child, let's say. And so this man was accused of, like, pedophilia, and I don't know what happened to him, to be honest, but one day he left the shelter and he was never to be seen again. There was another man who walked with a limp everywhere he went. He was an older gentleman, and I once asked somebody who was standing next to me, this adult, what had happened to make him limp, as 10-year-olds do. And this man turns to me and he says, well, I'll just say this, if a cop ever tells you to stop running, you should stop running. And I kind of got the gist from that. (laughs) And it taught me something about the kinds of people that I was surrounded by and the kinds of experiences they may have had. There was this one adult man who moved into the shelter about halfway through my tenure there. (laughs) He was a single male and therefore lived in the single male area of the shelter. And at the time, the most noticeable thing about him was he had like this hole in his throat, like an actual hole in his throat, probably from some prior procedure, condition of some sort. And he had this small tool that he put in his hand and he would touch it to the hole in his throat to help him speak. And it would produce this sort of robotic sounding voice. This man kind of like took a liking to me and I got this weird vibe from it and from him. 
He once pulled aside my brother and me, like nine or ten years old at this point, and he told us that he wanted to take us to go and see the new G.I. Joe movie, which had come out just around that time. I can't remember if he told us to ask our mom if we could go, or if he said something like he had already asked her and that we could go, or what, but it was basically like, tonight at 7.30, I want to take you guys to see G.I. Joe. Well, I definitely did not care to see G.I. Joe, and I definitely didn't want to see it with this man. So I think I politely declined or said something like, I'll see you later, I have to ask mom, I don't remember. But later on, I found myself sat next to this man on one of the two computers. He, I don't know what he was doing, but he was sitting there and he suddenly turns over to me and he starts making this kissing noise. And I look back over at him kind of like, what's that noise? And he makes the kissing noise again and smirks at me. And I just sit there frozen looking at him and he lifts up his shirt and scratches his belly, and then makes the kissing noise again at me. So at this point, I'm 10, and I'm like, okay, I feel slightly uncomfortable, but at that age, I assume bad things don't happen to people, and I don't know what to do. I don't want to, like, accuse someone of something that doesn't really make sense to me. I can't really articulate what's going on. So I just remember telling my mom about it later that night. I don't know what I did in that moment. Somehow it got back to my mom that night. And she was very livid, naturally, as mothers are. And she went downstairs into the area where all the grown people hang out. And I have no idea what happened, but I never saw that man again. It was right around this time that I was watching Disney Channel and I saw Nick Jonas in a commercial. And I was like, okay, Nick Jonas is hot. And I realized, like, I'm probably gay. That is a story for another podcast I've already recorded. But I wanted to tell my mom... Because I feel like, I don't know, what do I have to lose at this point? I don't <laughs> I'm in a homeless shelter, like, let me just let me just stir the pot a little bit. No, I felt like I wanted to tell my mom, but it was right around the time that this old man was flirting with me. And so I was like, I don't think I can tell my mom. I remember thinking, like, I can't tell my mom because I don't want her to feel like it had anything to do with this man scratching his belly at me. Really, it had everything to do with Nick Jonas. But I didn't want it to even appear like this man had influenced me. So I declined to (laughs) tell my mother at this point that I thought I might actually be gay. Though there were gay people in the shelter, much to my surprise, especially thinking about it now, there was one gay guy in particular. I don't remember his name. I don't remember much about him at all. And I definitely didn't know that he was gay. I didn't know what gay probably was for the most part. But I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, he was gay. He had some like strawberry shortcake phone that he would use. And he had some other mannerisms and things he was interested in. And I kind of liked that guy. He was always very nice to me and very, you know, treated me like a kid in a homeless shelter and like, you know, gave me encouragement and candy or whatever. But nevertheless, I decided that I probably should not tell anyone that I think I'm gay. So we were obviously aware that things were not going well in our home life financially and we felt like this was a pretty big secret nobody at school could know obviously that we lived in a homeless shelter because what would that say about us we were pretty ashamed of having to live where we were and to live in poverty and the secret was pretty well kept until we had to tell people because our mom ended up having trouble getting us to and from school on her own i don't think we had a car for a little while and so getting to school on time became an issue And we eventually had to communicate with our teachers and our principal that we needed help. So for a little while, we were being driven to school by our our nice principal who would drive downtown and have us get in his big truck, and then he would drive us to school. 
Then for another little while, we'd be picked up by a private service bus that was paid for by our mother. It was something relatively cheap. They would come and pick us up in the grocery store parking lot across the street. And it served the whole community, so it would sort of drop people off along the way, picking the best route to get us to school. We were sitting next to, like, these grown adults who were on their way to work, on their way home, whatever. And then that bus would drop us off at school. There was no, like, big yellow school bus because we actually were attending a school that was far out of our district because it was the school we were attending when we lived nearby. It was just this very weird thing that nobody wanted to acknowledge. It was always, like, a little bit weird. Why were we getting picked up in the grocery store parking lot and not, like, a house? Our principal knew, but he didn't want to say, like, oh, you guys live in the shelter. You guys, what's it like living in the shelter? You guys, okay, maybe I can give you this. It was just, like, the writing on the wall and nobody wanted to talk about it. We also had a lot of church outreach in the shelter. On Sundays, this church would come and ask us if we wanted to go to church. And for a while, my brother and I did, and we were kind of excited to get picked up in this giant school bus and drive all over town picking up other kids who wanted to go to Sunday school with us. But it was the same sort of deal, like they would pick us up in the parking lot and then drop us off in the parking lot, and we would not tell anyone where we lived or why we were getting picked up and dropped off in a grocery store or parking lot. But Sunday school was pretty interesting. (laughs) I don't much remember the teachings. I'm sure that they were... You could infer what they were teaching us about. But I remember we would sit in these little classrooms and someone who looked like a nun, like dressed like a nun, would come and teach us scripture. And we would talk about what it meant and what the intended meaning was. And I remember she once came in a little bit late and she said something like, the devil almost got me today, but I was strong enough to get out of bed and I came in and now I'm here with all of you guys. And she said things like that. Everyone there said things like that. And they talked about never lying because it's a sin and whatever, whatever. It was all pretty foreign to me, the idea of sin and the idea of religion and the idea of religion dictating who we were meant to be. Because religion never really played a part in my life. My family was not particularly religious. We did not go to church for holidays or anything like that. I mostly think my brother and I were in it for the snacks and the social hours. We would eventually stop going to this place. What it was, was there was once a pastor, or I don't know, a pa- is it a pastor? Is that what that is? Is it a preacher? I don't know. The person at the altar giving me <laughs> information about God said something like, we're reading the King James version of the Bible, which is the only correct version of the Bible, which seems like a pretty benign thing to say. Like if you are a religious person, you probably believe there's a correct version of the Bible. But we told our mom this and she said, oh, well, I don't, I don't really agree with that. She took issue with the absolutist framework or the absolutism of the uh, church in saying that, well, there's only one correct version of the Bible and that she didn't really want us going there anymore. We got to live in the shelter for free. I think there was some small payment system like you had to pay a dollar a week or five dollars a month or something like that. I'm not really sure, but In exchange for this low cost or free rent, we had to follow a certain set of rules. People had to come home by dark. You couldn't be out after dark. And if you didn't make it back or you were drunk or you weren't right, you wouldn't be allowed in. But my mom had kids and she worked nights and it was really hard for her to come back after dark. It was hard for her to follow those traditional rules. So she ended up being given a key so she could let herself in at the end of the night. Now, this key was an exception to the rule. It was kind of a great power and a great responsibility. 
But the social power surrounding my mom now that she had this key was pretty enticing. And she did make a lot of friends with people in the shelter and she began hanging out with them. All of this contributed to this sense of community that I was talking about earlier that we had. We all knew each other. We were all in each other's business. And though we were close and sort of like this weird misfit family, we also had, like any misfit family, a lot of drama. And fights would break out constantly in the shelter. One time, someone was clipping his toenails on the communal couch. And the other people around didn't really appreciate that there were toenails and naked feet on the couch that other people would sit on to watch TV. And one of them decided to say something and confront the person clipping his toenails. And the person clipping his toenails didn't like being told what to do. And they just started fist fighting. <laughs> and there were other people nearby. They had to pull them off, that kind of thing. This is while we were waiting to eat our volunteer-made dinner. And that was something, it was a fairly common sighting, honestly. There was a lot of fighting, a lot of tension, a lot of built-up anger, resentment, that kind of thing. But my mom would also get wrapped up in all of this drama. So though alcohol was forbidden, they were drinking. Her access to the key made it easier for her to drink. Her status, I think, having kids made them more lenient with her and the rules and did not require her to get sort of tested for alcohol or uh, anything like that. And so she more frequently bent the rules and she would get wrapped up with different love interests that she met in the shelter at different times during our time there. Two people that I remember um, extensively spending a lot of time with. Let's just say they both had extensive mental health and substance use histories who also had, like all of us there, been battling their own demons. And when alcohol became involved, as it did, the situations frequently deteriorated. And there was a lot of physicality in some of the nights in the homeless shelter. I remember one night in particular. It was the first time I think I had ever questioned my mom's judgment. I didn't know that alcohol was really a thing. I didn't know that alcohol made people act goofy. I didn't know that alcohol could change your perception. And maybe the person you're talking to, if they've had enough alcohol, isn't the person you think that you're talking to. Not the same person you talk to when they're sober. And my mom had had a lot to drink one night. And I was sleeping in the bunk bed with my brother probably going to school the next day. And we just hear a lot of yelling coming from the living room and the lights are on and everyone's yelling and there's banging and clattering and my mom is saying something about somebody and someone else is trying to hold somebody back. And I'm like really pissed because I'm trying to sleep <laughs> and also kind of worried like what's going on out there. I don't really know. And one of the adults, the other adults comes in and tells us, hey, you guys, everything's okay. Like, let's just talk something, something while my mom is out there, like losing her mind at whatever is happening in the living room. I didn't understand that alcohol was involved at that point. But I remember in my mind now, the guy that came in to talk to us was like holding a beer and he had glassy red eyes. And of course, you know, all the signs were there that he was drunk, but I didn't know that he was drunk. I didn't know that alcohol made people act that way. So I thought, what is my mom getting into? Like, what is she sort of doing? I feel like this is kind of weird now. But I went on not doubting her. The perception of my mother was that she was someone who worked hard and tried and did her best. And that didn't change for a couple years until after the homeless shelter. But in this particular instance, I began to question, maybe there's more going on than I know all the answers to. 
on this idea of young people being particularly cared for, but also vulnerable in the homeless shelter, I think is a really interesting sort of paradigm or dichotomy. Because as a child, you are looked after, but you're also sought after by these nefarious actors. But this group of people also did care deeply about my brother and me. There were people who would go outside in the alleyway and play catch with us, throw balls with us back and forth. They would let us cut in line when having dinner. It was always women and children eating dinner first. I forgot about that. And there were also these volunteers who would come to the shelter and volunteer to hang out with us. There was in particular this couple of older folks that were married, and they would come to the shelter to play games with some of the younger kids. They introduced themselves to me once, and I forget the man's name, but the woman said, I have kind of a strange name. It's Irma. And for some reason, I lied to her and said, oh my god, no, that's not strange. I know like three people named Irma. For no apparent reason, I think I didn't want her to feel bad about her weird name, so I just lied and told her I know a lot of people named Irma. But she took it in stride and did not press further on my lies. We would play cards and board games, go fish, something like that, every week for a little while, and we would make small talk, and we'd talk about school. And they would kind of try to impart on me whatever bits of wisdom they could as an impressionable young man I was, looking for lessons wherever they could find them to teach me something about life. For example, if I said that, oh, I didn't really feel like going to school tomorrow, they would say, well, you know, school is really important. In school, it's good to get good grades. It's important to find subjects you like, that kind of thing. They were very nice, but hanging out with adults can get rather dull eventually, especially when they're telling me to eat my vegetables and grow up big and strong. So they kept coming around, but eventually I would stop meeting with them until they slowly faded away. We would also get donations from the community, like Walmart or local stores that were having produce that was about to expire, or if Walmart got a shipment of stuff that was broken or off-season or whatever, they would sometimes donate it to us. And donation days at the shelter were very exciting times. You could find many different things in the donation bin in the homeless shelter. I remember finding shampoo, toys, games, travel-sized little carrying cases, things that I would definitely not need, but also would have no luxury to ever obtain, at least at that point in my life. My mother... I like to think, was a good person. But it's easy for me to see how her getting involved with other people in this sort of group mentality led her down this other road that was more chaotic and more challenging and more difficult and ultimately would lead us out of the homeless shelter, not with an honorable discharge, not because we had found somewhere where the grass really was greener, but because we had no choice. Her romantic relationships were chaotic, they were jealous, they were possessive, and frankly, they ended up being dangerous. But suffice it to say, (laughs) it was time for us to go eventually. Our time in this place would come to an end. We felt like we had no way out and were really just at a dead end. My mom's relationship was at its breaking point, and at the same time, she was looking for work and couldn't find anything that would ever really pay her enough, given her skill set, to be able to have a normal life with two kids. But we had one last option that we could try to make work. Grandpa's house. Grandpa lived in California, and he had a couple of extra rooms that our family could move into. 
I don't know why we didn't think of Grandpa's house first. I think it's frustrating and difficult to move halfway across the country to your dad's house that you moved out of 20 years ago, and now you have to move back because you can't make it work. Maybe that is a reason why. Maybe my mom really believed we would only be in the shelter for a weekend. I don't really know. Maybe she thought she could handle it herself. I don't know. But in any case, we ultimately discovered that we had another option. I was very excited. As a 10-year-old, this was a genius idea. It was very exciting, sufficient enough to shake up everything and get me out of Nebraska. And I kind of was thinking, well, everything will be better after this because we'll be living in Grandpa's house. So (laughs) what my mom did was she sold her food stamps credit card to somebody else in town in exchange for cash, which is illegal, but what are you going to do at this point? $100 in cash will get you to California, and then this is $300 in food stamp money, and you can spend it at the grocery store all month. So true to my mom's fashion and form and how we were raised is this was kind of a hasty decision. And she decided, okay, we're leaving to California tomorrow. And I was like thrilled, of course, but we didn't have a plan. She just called us out of school that day and said, we can't tell anyone because we're going to get in trouble if we get caught. I remember we were sitting in the shelter. We were downstairs on the computer that would turn off after an hour of use. And we were on MapQuest Googling first the directions and also how much is it going to cost in gas to drive to California. And there was another family down there and they had a kid and we didn't particularly like this other family, but they were playing cards and they were sort of sneering, sort of snickering and they were like why are these kids not in school blah 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 little do they know we were literally about to flee (laughs) burn every bridge for the last time and so my mom printed out the directions because that's what you had to do back in the day we didn't have siri telling us the directions she printed them out in paper and she printed out a list of like gas stations that were the cheapest to stop at along the way we told the people downstairs we're vacating the apartment we're leaving today we packed up myself my brother everything we owned our blankets our suitcases our precious items our books our school supplies and we loaded it into the trunk and backseat of our car we got in the car and we drove for 22 hours straight, not stopping in my mom's true-to-form fashion, and we didn't look back. And we never returned to that homeless shelter again, which closed that part of my life and turned it into just a memory that I look back on. And it makes me think of, again, why am I talking about this? Why am I talking about what it's like to be homeless? As an adult now, I'm like, what do these stories mean to me? Do they mean anything? Do they have to mean anything? Is there a lesson learned somewhere in these memories? Does there have to be a lesson learned somewhere? And I think I think there is. I think one that we can probably all relate to in some way or another is that things change and get better. Being homeless at that time, at 10 years old, it felt like my eternity. It felt like this was the end of my life. But it turns out it wasn't actually my life, and I've lived many amazing, worthwhile adventures in my life since then. That's one part of the story. I also think that there just is dignity in the human experience, and that I think of these people who were at one time my family, if not at least my community, and the experiences that we shared together. I don't wish this experience on anyone. I would never like to go back, but it was my experience. It's a part of who I am and who I've ended up becoming. And I think that those moments in all of our lives matter and they're worth talking about. This experience now is like this black box of memories. 
unopened, but it's been somewhere inside of me for all these years. And I'll randomly get a flashback and a memory of my days spent in that place, an old story that I'll like pull out and remember that for a while I shaped my life in that place. As if I'm this outside observer, someone on the other side peering through like a telescope at my old self and my old situation, and I can see how this period helped shape me. I like to think of myself as healed and easily able to talk about this kind of thing, and I think that is true. (laughs) I think in general these stories don't keep me up at night anymore. Like, I know in my heart of hearts that I have and had nothing to be ashamed of, and that I had value even though my family was struggling financially. I just now think of all the dynamics and the dangerous situations that I was in that I now find unacceptable, but that I lived them as a child with no control to make things better, and that, at the end of the day, other people are still living this experience. The feeling of survival mode and of poverty are absolutely devastating. They're debilitating, they're painful, and I wouldn't want anyone to ever have to experience them. And it's really hard for me to know that this is the world we live in, (laughs) where there is suffering, there is poverty, it continues, it goes on, it has gone on, where so many can have so much in this world while others lack even the basic necessities. Obviously, the solutions are bigger than me and bigger than any amount of money I could ever donate, but I sit here now as this observer, and I can just see how this period shaped me. And now I'm sharing it with the world, and I hope that you can look back at some painful time in your life and honor it and respect it and take what you can from it and use it to do good in the world. But if you decide you never want to think about it again, you don't have to. That is your priority. That is your prerogative. It has taken me 10 years to decide really that maybe I want to talk about this and maybe I want to think more about what this period in my life meant to me. That's okay. And if you never get there, that's okay too. See you next time.